0: Welcome to the Service Management Leadership Podcast with Jeffrey Tiefertiller.
1: Welcome to another Service Management Leadership Podcast. I have a great guest for you, Charles Betts with Forrester. Charles, welcome to the podcast.
0: Thank you, Jeffrey.
1: And so let me start. I always uh, ask guests just to tell us a little bit about themselves, just because. We all come from such unique
0: backgrounds. Charles,
1: what tell us a little bit about
0: yourself. Sure, absolutely. So currently I'm the vice president and research director for enterprise architecture coverage globally at Forrester Research, the analyst firm based in Cambridge, Massachusetts and previously i have a practitioner background uh, working as an enterprise architect and in related functions in large enterprises uh, such as at wells fargo best buy and target oh wow wow so
1: i i will say that when i saw your forester research being mentioned in the tech beacon article i globbed onto it, and I thought, we need to have Charles on the podcast. And so do you mind sharing a little bit about your research? I think it was the state of IT service management, Uh, a little bit about that research and anything related to that, just as we get started?
0: Yeah, Um, so it is a distinct pleasure and honor for me to actually uh, run a fairly large survey research project, and this is uh, um, absolutely uh, not something everybody gets to do here. I have made the case for what we call the Modern Technology Operations Survey, which is a uh, fielded via a professional panel provider of data, essentially you know market market research. And it's focused on what you could broadly call operational questions, although the survey extends into DevOps and product centric thinking into agile um, into enterprise architecture. Basically, what the survey doesn't cover is tech and you know what kind of server are you going to use or are you going to be on prem versus the cloud we don't talk about that but we're very interested in the operational practices of digital delivery at scale. And that includes DevOps as as well as more traditional practices, such as we might see coming out of the ITIL and IT service management world. Now, the survey as a whole was very explicitly Influenced by the accelerate state of DevOps research, A.K.A. the the DORA research line, uh, DevOps research and assessment. I'm a great admirer of Dr. Nicole Forsgren and Jean Kim and Jez Humble, her collaborators. And so, part of what I have been trying to do is reproduce some of their data. Um, using a completely different method, completely different survey methodology. This is you know what what we do in, in research. We try to reproduce results using different approaches. And I'm pretty happy to report that that we're able to confirm, I would say, much, if not most, of, of the findings that that have been published uh, in the state of DevOps research. Now, the article you saw, and I want to be very precise about this for the listener. There was a large survey, in fact we've run it three years in a row now, but the article you saw was based on the twenty twenty one run of the data, where we surveyed I think a thousand a thousand IT professionals who had some level of what we call day two responsibility. So you know, you didn't get asked to be in the survey if all you do is write software and you never are exposed to the operational consequences. But if you write software and then run it, then you can be in the survey. And in fact, we had many developers in the survey. So this is something I'm always trying to be very clear about. Out of that survey data, we published not one, but three reports the state of modern technology operations, which was the highest level report, and then two subsidiary reports, the state of DevOps and the state of service management. It was the final report that attracted the attention of the tech beacon reporter who then wrote an article about it. And in that, we. You know, certainly talked about the traditional ITIL practices, incident management, change management, service catalogs, CMDB, all of those things. Gotcha.
1: And I will say the statistical viability struck me just because there aren't very many. I do a lot of LinkedIn polls. They're not statistically right. viable. They're kind of indicators like, hey, there might mm-hmm. be something worth worth uncovering but the statistical viability of the surveys and of these reports struck me. So can you pull back and share some of the highlights of these reports, especially the service management one that I'm anxious to hear about?
0: Yeah, absolutely. So it's true. Um, I work with professional statisticians. I work with professional survey designers. They keep me on the straight and narrow uh you know i mean of course like most of us i had like a lot of us i had some college statistics and i know enough to be dangerous but um we have pretty good capabilities for survey design at this at this point in Forrester. we've done a lot of it and then once the data comes in we have amazing statisticians you know who can do not just simple tallying of the survey results which may be interesting as far as it goes but actually really dive into the data with techniques like like correlation analysis and cluster analysis, uh, k-means analysis and uh, factor analysis. And in fact, it was factor analysis that Dr. Forsgren herself applied in the uh, state of DevOps research, and so it's always been a goal of mine to, to take the Forrester research to a comparable level, which Forrester had done, I mean we have the, that that level of statistical Uh, talent in our group courtney eldridge in particular who is a person who does not get nearly enough uh, uh, publicity and shout outs so i'm going to give her a shout out right here Uh, couldn't have done it without her um, because i don't have you know that level of stats but it was fun because you know courtney was looking at the data and she said i have no idea what a cmdb is But it appears to be important. (laughs) You know, I mean, she came in with no axe to grind, you know, completely unfamiliar. And she's like, there it is, there it is in the data. It's popping up, you know, and not only it's not just important, in factor analysis, you know, you're really looking for the most important, the most predictive constructs. And I was shocked because there's been other attempts to show that configuration management is important. And typically we've we've not had good data on this, and maybe the survey is going to be an outlier. Um, but what we saw, the the major factors we constructed, we ultimately called um, the tech forward dimension and the culture forward dimension. and you can look at these as you know a notorious four box or quadrant, if you will. Um, I'm an analyst, we love our two-dimensional matrices you know some oh, yeah. sue us. Um, oh, yeah. And one of the dimensions, you know, is is reflective of not only the traditional tech uh, concerns like having good responsive shared services and a CMDB. But we also saw correlations there with more modern tech practices, such as a continuous delivery pipeline. Um, Those were all kind of factoring together. They were kind of aligning together and then at right angles, if you will. We had this cultural dimension which was all about things like do you when 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 there's bad news do you shoot the bearer of bad news you know or do you look at bad news as an opportunity to investigate the system more do you believe in fast failure and experimentation great question i mean we love questions when there's a wide range of responses oh yeah there were clearly a lot of people who were not comfortable with fast failure, you know they—they they, like nope, 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 not here. That's a big nope, nope, nope. <laughs> and surprise, surprise, those people were, you know, also much more likely to be working in organizations that are not as profitable, right. not as successful, not as likely to have stable and well-managed IT systems. We see again this correlation that that toxic culture is not a good thing operationally and not a good thing in terms of your bottom line. Um, And we're not the first, and I don't think we're gonna be the last to have demonstrated that with some level of statistical rigor.
1: And it's awesome to just have these conversations. So I think that the more we have these conversations, maybe people become more comfortable and that we just bring things to light and have just to have some conversations because there aren't enough of these any, I don't think in this world, So as I was reading the Tech Beacon article, and we all love our confirmation bias. We all love it, myself included. I was nodding along at the parts about the CMDB. I was like, yes, yes, Mm -hmm. yes. This confirms all my priors. This confirms my beliefs. And I appreciated having the statistical viability confirming my my previous thoughts. Yeah. Will you share some of the CMDB findings you had besides the ones you just did?
0: um well you know that the, the uh, we didn't ask a lot of questions on it um we did ask if you if people believe that their data quality was sufficient for purpose because that's the big challenge with CMDBs is data quality uh and in general you know we saw a correlation that people were more likely to answer that question in the affirmative um, if, they, if they if they were ranked highly in, in other aspects of maturity. And so, you know, the, the hypothesis is that if you know what you have, you're better at managing it, um, yeah. which is, at the end of the day, not that remarkable of a hypothesis, but it's taken us a, a while to get there. I mean, I can, you know, I know for a fact that... Uh, Organizations like the IT Process Institute probably 15 years ago did a survey, and the evidence on the CMDB was highly ambiguous. Uh, You know, it just there was no statistical support for it at all. Um, And now, you know, we are, and it could be just evolution of the industry. You know, deepening understanding amongst industry practitioners of the importance. I I don't know why. Um, but we did only ask a few questions on CMDB. What was notable was how, how strongly predictive they were of so many other questions where there was a, a maturity dynamic.
1: And I think that's the part, right? Like, to me, that we love leading at indicators. We love to say, if this happens, we can predict this. And I think the ability to tie yeah. a, a quality CMDB to quality operations is is. It sounds simple, but it's something that we probably should grasp more strongly.
0: Right. Now, of course, you always get into the arguments about correlation versus causation. And my understanding of the statistics is even in the cluster analysis, I'm not sure we can call it true causation. You have to build a causal model. um, And that gets beyond, I think, you know, research that we can easily achieve. But nevertheless, I mean. If you know, if you know that something's correlated, investing in it is at least a reasonable strategy, you know, and and maybe you're putting maybe you're at some risk of putting the cart before the horse. Um, But at a pragmatic level, we provide guidance all the time to people who are struggling with just visibility into their IT systems, we tell them to invest in a CMDB they come back later they've made some success with it they're not regretting it um you know in the best cases in the worst cases they regret it because they didn't pay enough attention to data governance um and that's that's really you know i think the number one failure mode for cmdbs is a failure of data architecture and governance you and i are in sync and not having this
1: conversation before you and i are in sync let's talk about change management change enable sure. that i i see it evolving You know, it was bureaucratic in years gone by. How do you see it evolving into the future?
0: So change management is the one area where my findings uh, really have, have differed from the state of DevOps research. The state of DevOps research found that organizations that refer all changes to the change advisory board have worse overall business outcomes. I can't replicate that. Um, However, I can replicate that there is definite interest in leaner and more agile forms of change management and that there is a huge opportunity. I just know from my vendor research that change management can be automated. I believe it should be automated. Uh, We should be, you know, looking at change risk scoring. We should be developing change credit ratings for teams. That's what Target does. Uh, they went on the record. They, they appeared, I was there in the audience, they appeared at the uh, HDI um, um, uh, Help Desk Institute Conference, uh, I think 2019, and they got up and talked about change credit rating. And that's something that I've also seen in the banking sector, the idea that it's the track record of the team that really is a key factor for understanding change risk. Now, this takes some, you know, some significant analytics to achieve. You don't just achieve this overnight. You almost need a lightweight data mart uh, to start looking at the historical data and the historical track records. And at the most advanced, you get into some of the solutions that are made available in the market by vendors like Numerify and Evolvin. Numerify having been acquired by digital.ai that can look at broad swaths of data relevant to a proposed change and say, okay, well, the last few times we had a change that looked anything like this, it didn't end well, so this is gonna be a risky change. But the idea that you mitigate risk by making overloaded technical leaders review somebody's description of a change in a large, long, you know, database field. And let me, I'm being very precise in my language. A change advisory board does not review changes. A change advisory board in the bad old way reviews people's description of changes. It reviews people's characterizations of changes this is not the same as reviewing the change a finger pointing at the moon is not the moon in Buddhist terminology and so we have this real risk of just theater you know oh we routed it through the change advisory board in fact we're routing everything through the change advisory board how is it that our system availability is still terrible you know it's like yeah you know you're, you're 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 putting on this great theater for your regulators and auditors maybe or I don't know who. Um, but the bottom line is, is that this is you know you are not going to achieve what you think you're going to achieve by putting this process in place, it is not the control you think it is. Um, and uh, that's my fundamental concern with change management and everything through the cab and and all that kind of thing um you know so but we do still see a correlation which you know the higher performers in the state of mto did believe in change management and the higher performers did send it did tend to send more changes to the change advisory board i have to you know and, and you know we published that that in some of the findings um but uh i i also the thing we didn't ask about is how much of the changes are you automating right um and i think that there's just a whole bunch of stuff there to unpack and and maybe even survey research is is not gonna give us the results we want because it's difficult to in a survey context get to people with the right level of expertise you know i mean I'm surveying, you know, a random sample of people who have some tech familiarity. But if I ask, you know, one person from a great big IT shop, do you send change all changes to the change advisory board? How are they even going to know for sure? Right, they might just say yes, because it sounds like something that they should do. So I question the validity of my own data. And, you know, I'm very skeptical about the validity of my own data. Which is why I'm more interested in correlations. You know, the signal that emerges from correlations and those kinds of things. Um, but um, in any event, uh, you know, I I continue to to look for you know you know my my current position on change is is that I would never say to a company discontinue the change process. You know, every company needs a change process, and I think even the state of DevOps research reflects that need. Because in the well-known DORA metrics, change fail rate is one of the key metrics that they recommend you track. Well, how are you gonna track change fail rate if you haven't got a change process? (laughs) By definition to me, if you are tracking change fail rate, it means you have a change fail process because somebody is evaluating that data and you're keeping track of it. Otherwise you don't know how many changes failed because you're not tracking the changes. So I would never say do away with your change process, but I would say question how you do it. You know, do you really need to send everything to the cab? Can you pre-approve? Can you automate? Can you do automated risk management? Can you experiment with change, change credit scoring? All of this stuff I mentioned.
1: Which are great ideas. And I've implemented a lot of those. And even on your cab idea of thought, there are the diversified cabs, which aren't the enterprise one, but... You know things that help speed. They're delegated down. Yeah,
0: yeah. You know, so federate, so federate them. Or does yeah. it need to be a synchronous cab? Right. Can it just be a virtual cab? You know, people people can sign off on the change at their leisure, at their convenience. Um, and then once everybody's signed off, the change can go through. But there didn't have to be a meeting. Meetings are expensive. They're sync. Yes. They're expensive sync points. Yes. Um, and the and I used to be, I used to see that. You know, when I was uh, in retail. We'd have the change advisory board meetings and literally people would be lined up out the door. And the trouble is, is as we built more and more systems, you had more and more people lined up out the door. You needed more and more subject matter experts in the room who themselves are very expensive. And yet for any one subject matter expert, it became a less and less beneficial use of their time because they would sit in the cab meeting for three hours and only one change would come up that they were interested in. Now, obviously, people should be reviewing the change log before they go to the cab meeting, maybe you can manage things that way, but then you don't know exactly. So there's two changes, and they're, they're at different times, you can't get them to bring the times together, or you know that there's one change, but you don't know exactly when because it could go late, it could go early. And so you're still wind up with a lot of wasted time. Uh, and so that's, uh, you know, there's, there's all these, you know, really detailed operational dynamics that need to be considered when you look at a, a major synchronization process like the change advisory or change approval process.
1: And those are great points. And I would even think that it, it makes it more difficult to match level of effort in assessing risk to the change itself because you're treating everything the, the, the same yeah.
0: Yeah, and some so, of it, you know, is above the line. Some of but but the, the trouble is, is that risk management itself needs to be a more quantified discipline. Yeah. Um, you know, when you've just got kind of a, you know, low, medium, high level of immature, very naive risk scoring and of course the development, the development lead wants the change to go through so they're always going to say the risk is low you know until they're burned by it and then they may always say that the risk is high because they were reprimanded for characterizing a change as low risk once upon a time so now every change that they submit you know becomes a high risk change because they're scared now this is not the way to run a this is not the way to 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 run a business you know i'm right there with you more objective oh
1: yeah let's move into a thought that i think is where, when you and I spoke beforehand, the service management, especially the way we think about it has become more of a product. And- sure. Yeah, I love it. And and when we think of it through, you know, you mentioned CI/CD, we think of all the new technology coming through, especially with service management and the platform and all that sort of thing. How do you see that evolving?
0: Well, product management nails it right there. Um, So the big, unspoken, untold story in IT lately is the enormous global transformation to the product-centric operating model. Uh, The companies, the size and scale of the transformations that are happening, the longevity of these transformations, this is not flash in the pan, this is not fad, this is, you know, this is what Agile and DevOps ultimately culminated in is organizations all over the world starting to pivot to what's called a product-centric operating model and it's a it's a basically the the book that that i think encapsulates it is from project to product by mick kirsten and another super important book in the whole transformation is team topologies which i was honored to be a reviewer on I heard a senior leader with Deloitte uh, consulting at the DevOps Enterprise Summit just about you know a week ago. I think it was just last Thursday. In fact, stood in front of a room and said, "Team Topologies is the most important book on IT transformation in the last ten years," and I I would agree with that. Um, and it's all about product sensibility. And what does product sensibility boil down to ultimately? Customer obsession customer intimacy and it's a application in many cases of customer obsession internally but the idea is that the service needs to be very customer focused needs to be very outcome focused now this is not different from what itil in its most sophisticated aspects was saying with itil v3 certainly and probably even parts of itil v2 um you know the services strategy volume of ITO v three, I had some issues with it, but ultimately it was a it was a very was and is a very good piece of work and represented a sophisticated understanding of service well beyond what most people were thinking of when they were thinking in terms of well, my SLA is keep the application up for four nines. Um, the service strategy volume was in a whole different plane. And what I will what I will say is that, that sophisticated aspect of the conversation has been picked up and carried forward effectively by the product-centric conversation ultimately the service management world did not carry through and what happened was instead this got picked up by the product folks and in the product world we have a wide variety of very widely read and and very influential thinkers. I mean, people like Melissa Perry, Teresa Torres, Marty Kagan, Steve Blank, Jeff Patton, um, a very diverse mix of thinkers who are really driving the industry forward in terms of you know the application of of this new philosophy and the influence has been massive i mean without you know going outside of any confidences i mean i can tell you companies that are on the record doing this target of course very very well-known transformation over the past uh, 10 years and maybe you know one of the first and most public uh, but Shell, uh, Shell Oil—I mean, my gosh, talk about a massive, massive company—they're pursuing this. J.P. Morgan Chase uh, on the record several times that they're pursuing this agenda. Nationwide Insurance—the list goes on: Barclays, ING, Lloyd's Bank. I mean, it just—you know—and uh, then here in Minnesota, I talked to even—you know—small to medium health maintenance organizations are pursuing product-centric. You know, I talked to a. A, a senior tech leader at, at a at, a, at a, a local HMO. I mean, it's a chain, and they're not small, but they're certainly not you know international in scope. They're doing product-centric operating model, you know. And so this is where the service management community, I think, really you know at, at this point, you know, a friend of mine, you know, we what we said to each other, you know, a, a year or so ago, is like, well, in some ways, service lost and product won, um, but product picked up what service was trying to do and people still talk about the need for services and service management isn't going away the classic practices of change and incident we still need them Um, but a lot of the momentum has passed to the product community it's a lot of where the the interesting action is nowadays and your service management has so much to learn from it like your service management platform should be managed as a product if you're running service now It should be run as an internal product with attention to internal customer satisfaction, internal customer journeys. Um, Change in incident management, knowledge management are features of that platform. Or you could, even at a certain level of scale, you could say that they are subproducts of the platform. Um, Your ability to capture and represent services in a service catalog itself is a service. Now we've really gone meta here. It's the service of managing services um but it's a legit service and it needs organ. you know you somebody needs to curate those offerings and make them public and you need a platform and associated technical capabilities to do that um so that's you know kind of where I'm at with uh you know the the whole service management conversation and don't get me wrong I mean service management is a conversation as a set of themes not going to go away a lot of people you know still believe in ITIL. we're trained in it it's how it's the frame through which they view the world um, and I would just say, say to you know everybody, though, it's just please look at the product world. Um, there's a lot to benefit from there. Uh, and, and it's really moved the needle, I think, in a lot of ways uh, in terms of making digital systems and IT as a function much more effective and uh, much more responsive to organizations.
1: And the irony is ITIL service management being Executed through a product, right? Right. Like your tool, there's something there. But I also want to throw out just how it changes how organizations have been designed through, whether it's uh, infrastructure and operations mindset or a shared services mindset. But, you know, this product centric, I think, is really going to shape org design like those two did
0: a decade, two decades ago. No, it is, it's already, it's really shaking up org design. And, and bear in mind that product is a very, very broad term. It includes shared services. Um, you know, when I was at at and the internal term for something like, uh, you know, wireline or broadband, we called those products, even though in classic terms, they're services. You know, services was used in, in marketing lingo, um, but internally these things are products. even though if they're offered as a service, they're intangible, you know they meet all the, the academic criteria of services. And so by products, I don't just mean you know um, you know oh you've got some software, you've got some bits on a disk. Uh, I, I mean that you know you, you really have a valuable offering uh, that is managed for customer, Customer intimacy, customer value, customer delight—it's managed with attention to the customer journey. The product manager cares about um, things like employee net promoter score if it's an internal product, um, all of those things. And it's a conversation that should be very familiar to folks who were in the service management space, but really, you know, taking it beyond you know some of the more technical connotations. And
1: so I let's can, if I can push in further, I do agree that there's this connection between your service management platform. You mentioned ServiceNow and and, and yep. products. I see, and if I can push in, I see that there's a a shortage of people who really excel being that product owner, product manager, because it's such technical expertise with ServiceNow or whatever, and yes. over on the product side as well. Yeah, you know, I mean those are. that you
0: have put your finger on the biggest gap in product-centric transformation is the problem of the technical product manager Mm -hmm. and so what's happening is that you know we've been doing product management and product i mean scrum 20 years ago proposed that on every scrum team there should be a product owner now, at the time, the product owner was just a functionary, they were just there to you know, manage the backlog they they were not owners in any real sense of the word. And for a while we had an inversion of terminology where product managers were above product owners. But that just doesn't make sense so i'm talking to more and more companies are just like okay we're getting away from the old scrum definition. The product owner is on the business and has fiscal authority and can authorize investment that's what we mean by ownership. Like the rest of the world and the manager is more the functionary doing the day-to-day um but that actually violates some of the scrum history and traditions um but the bottom line is that we've been doing that at the app at the business and customer facing level we've been doing that for 20 years now we've been you know creating cross-functional scrum teams that you know bring in the The requirements, the business analysts and the developers and the testers and the product perspective, and they're all there together iterating and having a nice collaborative conversation. But at the platform level, we've not had any tradition of cross functionality. And so organizations start saying, well, we're going to move from functional silos in the infrastructure group and we're gonna actually call them technical products, AKA platforms in team topologies terminology. But the problem is these platforms, they are staffed still by the same specialists. And in particular, what they lack is anybody coming in with a product management sensibility. We saw similar issues back in the day with ITIL. This is why some people proposed the service management office. Right. Because there were not people with a service perspective who were running the tech. Now we're having that same conversation, but we're reframing the terminology. But at the end of the day, you know, if you want a product team mentality operating at the infrastructure level, you're going to need some design thinking. You're going to need a product manager. And this is in a part of the organization that historically has not needed those skill sets. And so we hear of some organizations where the CFO is questioning, well, why do I need a product manager in the infrastructure and operations team? We've never had a product manager there before. Sounds like a waste of money to me. And you need some fairly significant executive sponsorship to overcome that kind of objection from the financial folks.
1: Oh yes, and and on that note, just even like prioritizing backlog or yeah. you know all those things that take both technical exactly. chops and the relational chops or whatever you want to call it, that's tough. I think it, it is. That's yeah. tough. And so Yeah, uh,
0: you are zeroing in on the one of the biggest constraints to product and agile, you know, agile devops product centric transformation. This is one of the biggest constraints is the platform team leadership problem yeah. because yeah you can't just take you know a team of 10 functional specialists 10 grouchy dbas as i like to say you know and i've worked with a lot of dbas you know but they're often on the hot seat right. you know and so yeah they 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 need assistance if they're going to behave if that team is going to appear to be a product a true product team that is empathetic and is you know, results and outcome oriented. You've got great technologists, but that's only one leg of the stool. It's my most recent blog. The basic framework that Marty Kagan lays out, and I think he drew on some previous work by Jeff Patton, products are viable, valuable, usable, and feasible. Those are the four characteristics of a product. Viability means the overall business proposition of the product, Makes sense. It can pay for itself, whether with internal transfer dollars or in the open market. So it applies both internally and externally. Valuable means that the end user finds that it's valuable to them. Usable, obviously, it needs to be friction free and delightful to use. And then feasible is the engineering. Most product teams are great at feasibility. I mean, a a functional silo is going to be good at, at the engineering. We've always had good engineering at the platform level. We wouldn't have been able to stand up highly skilled online transaction processing mainframes if we didn't have good engineering. That's never been the issue. The issue is the other three aspects of product management, which there's really no very little history in infrastructure teams and thinking in those terms to the extent that there is that history it actually lives in ITOL. but you have to look carefully and you have to be familiar with the broad scope of ITOL and things like service strategy and not just you know service operations
1: yes and and i don't want to get down this road but a lot of people ask me can this all live together under one house and i'm always like yes but it's going to look different in every house and yeah. uh, just because every organization is different. So as we begin to wrap up, sure and I think holistically, you know, as we look across the horizon, where do you think where do you see service management headed on a trajectory? what are some of the opportunities and obstacles?
0: Um, well, I definitely think that um, the uh, platform team conversation is is critical, given where the mainstream of service management wound up. I mean, the reality is although service management aspired to be relevant to the developers of the world, it never succeeded in doing that. I mean, you know, the service design volume of ITIL was not read by the application teams and that's the, the sad truth. Right. And so the ITIL and ITSM communities themselves remain more operational. And so they should really focus, that community should really focus on the platform team conversation and, and digging into team topologies, understand what team topologies means by a platform team. Some of the current debates that are going on around platform teams, I just was was chatting on Twitter with some of the, the, the team topologies authors, and there's some reservations about characterizing platform teams as shared services. I don't have any real problems with that, um, but others do. So there's some there's becoming some nuances to the debate, Uh, but the bottom line is I I really think that that a lot of what service managers have done is going to manifest itself at the platform's level, and uh, that's I think where where I'd recommend people look. That's a
1: great way for us to close. Is there do you have any parting words? So I very much appreciate your time and you joining us and offering your expertise, especially this research that's. I know you said it's not groundbreaking, but it is for us that live this and to have some validation that we've been on the right track.
0: My parting words may be surprising because I'm not going to say some lofty ideal, but there is something that I didn't talk about and that's the queuing problem. Everybody in a digital delivery organization needs to start being highly attentive to whenever work is backlogged and that notoriously happens in ticketing systems. And this is where I think ITIL, you know, really needed a significant uplift, I think it may even still need some uplifting, even version four, I'm not sure. Uh, If it talks about the queuing problems in quite the way that I I think that needs to be uh, talked about. And so I would say that, you know, really put your lean hat on. And if you're looking at an end-to-end system of work that is relying on, you know, ticketing or, you know, basically queuing up work orders of any kind for for human intervention, um, that's a real danger zone. Um, it imposes delay on the organization, and there's always a cost of delay. And I think that that realization really is still underappreciated and underexplored, and yet it's just such an enormous, set of, enormous uh, um, risk and cost to the modern digital enterprise, especially as we enter into these very volatile times and so that would be my my parting comments is is start really questioning queuing wherever you see it and and looking for ways to either automate it or turn it into to higher touch. somehow get the humans out of the loop or get the humans talking to each other directly. It's you know one or the other. And I think that that's that that's a, a very high priority probably will be a priority in this industry until well after I'm I retire so.
1: And I agree with you, especially because the queuing came really popular as we moved that service operations to somebody else's group, right? And then right. it became their problem and all that sort yep. of thing. So thank yep. you for joining us and sharing your expertise. I hope you'll join us again in the future. And uh, this has been a great
0: conversation. Thank you, Charles. Thank you, Jeffrey. had it had, had a nice time chatting with you. Thank you. Have a great day. You too.